This is our June series that is going to be focusing on men and mental health. So it is time for the tea and we have some good tea for you this month. We're going to be addressing a lot of different issues related to black males, including the justice system and mental health, black pastors and mental health, the barbershop and its mental health purpose for black men, as well as mental health and counseling. So if you all have any questions or comments, please feel free to drop them in the chat as we get going. And I know our guests will be so happy to answer all of these questions because you probably caught him just saying how excited he was about being on the show today. So without further ado, it is my sincere pleasure to introduce Judge Tariq Johnson. Judge Johnson is a 1998 graduate of Tougaloo College and 2001 graduate of the University of Mississippi School of Law. In 2001, after earning his Juris Doctorate, he became employed at the law firm of Johnson & Johnson Attorneys at Law, and yes, he is one of the Johnsons. In 2004, Attorney Johnson became employed by Grenada County to serve as the commitment attorney for the county. In 2012, he was appointed as the Youth Court Judge and Family Master for Montgomery County. In 2016, Judge Johnson was appointed as Public Defender for Grenada County. Welcome to Tea Time with Dr. Tarver, Judge Johnson. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was a lot of stuff on that introduction, but you know. Well, um, and, we, and for the record, you know you've got me out of my comfort zone because you know I don't do media. <laughs> I know you don't do social media, so uh, we, we have had multiple people ask me how they can get on here to see you because they also don't do social media, but we are going to, <laughs> we are going to bring people on in uh, to this century and allow them to be able to access this video. They can, they can of course, see you live, uh, and it will be posted on my other um, sites after this as well, so they need not be concerned. All right, so let's get into it because we got a lot to get to and not a lot of time um, to get on here. So let's start by uh, you were talking about in 2004, you were appointed as the commitment attorney in Grenada County. Tell people what that means, because I know a lot of folks don't even understand what the term commitment means, and particularly when it comes to mental health. Okay, so what I do um, is I assist people who family members who have loved ones that are suffering from a mental illness. I help them, I meet with them. A lot of times they are emotional. And so I'll meet with them, talk over their problems, and I would help them to get find placement for their loved ones, i.e. put them in a, in a treatment facility against their will. Okay, so typically what happens is a person, now in Mississippi, in Grenada in particular, the Board of Supervisors hired me to conduct the mental commitments. All right, but normally in Mississippi, you would contact the Chancery Clerk's Office and somebody from the Chancery Clerk's Office would do the paperwork and they'll get the person evaluated by two doctors and um, then set it up for a hearing. Well, in Grenada, the, the family members come to me. I'll sit down with them, explain the process to them, um, get information because one of the things you have to prove, I need factual information that the person is a danger to himself or herself and or unable to care for themselves, okay? And I need the facts from the people who observed it. Because if we go to court and they tell me what other people have said, that's hearsay and that's inadmissible in the court of law. And so what I do is meet with them, gather that information, and I actually draft the affidavit, uh, file the documents, schedule the appointments with the uh, physicians, coordinate with the sheriff's department on picking their loved ones up and transporting them to the facility. And then after they're evaluated by the doctors, I actually schedule the hearing. I would go and represent the family members in court. An attorney would be appointed to represent the uh, respondent or the person being committed, and we'll have the hearing. Um, and so that's it in a nutshell, what I do. I got some questions for you about that to follow up, right? So okay. you mentioned that you need factual evidence. So I cannot just come to you and simply say, my loved one is not being themselves and I need to be uh, over their affairs. No, 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 no. And, and, and I have had situations, because I've been doing this for almost uh, 20 years, and I've had situations where a spouse would come, try to commit their loved one, to get the upper hand in divorce or custody proceeding. 
And I'm conscious of that. And so I watch out for that because that's a red flag for me. If I sense something like that is going on, then I would say, ask that spouse, well, let that person, the respondent's parent or relative come in or a friend, somebody other than you that can say that this person is suffering from a mental illness. But what I mean about factual information, it has to be stuff observed by the person filing the affidavit of commitment. Okay. Um, it can't be a situation where, let's say, uh, their loved one is at double quick, uh, naked and double quick, but you didn't go to double quick to observe it. So you got phone calls from people at double quick saying that, you know, my husband or my brother is at double quick naked. All right. If you did not observe that, then you can't legally testify about that in court because that's hearsay. I need someone who actually witnessed the behavior. Okay. So and there has to be a person willing to come forward who literally can say at this time on this day, I witnessed this. That's correct. And, and the thing about it, I've had people come in and they often say, well, I'm not the spouse or I'm not a relative. The statute in Mississippi says a relative or interested person can file the affidavit of commitment. I've actually had law enforcement because a lot of times it, these individuals are out in the street and they commit certain crimes like disturbing the peace, such as my example with the person naked at double quick. Mm -hmm. That's disturbing the peace, disorderly conduct. And, and so when we don't have a family member that's willing to step forward and sign the affidavit of commitment and law enforcement is getting tired of constantly being called out there, sometimes I would have law enforcement to, to uh, sign the affidavit okay. and they would come testify. Okay, so you can have a law enforcement officer, but you can't just simply say, like, for example, um, my brother, uh, people are telling me he's out here naked, he's um, doing all these things, and hey, we want you to handle this, but I can't do that if I wasn't one of those people. It doesn't have to be a family member, but it does directly have to be somebody. Right, because, right because like I say, the person, the respondent is going to be appointing an attorney. Okay to represent their interest in court, okay? And that attorney can easily object to hearsay. And so, although the person was naked at double quick, if you did not witness it, observe it yourself personally, then that testimony will never get in, uh, be held, be, be spoken about in open court. Okay. And then the other point, and you just, uh, I think may have clarified it, but you don't represent this person that has this mental illness that someone is saying, um, hey, I, I want to get this person committed. You actually represent the family. I represent the family, which okay. would in legal terms be considered the affiant, the person okay. bringing the action. That's who I represent. And, and what I do is sit down and explain to them that there is no easy way to commit a person. Okay. Okay. Commitment should always be the last resort. All right. First, I would advise the, the, them to talk to their loved one and see if they're willing to go get treatment. Go to Life Health, which is the local mental health uh, facility here. Okay. See if they're willing to go. If the person is not willing to go, uh, Life Health used to have, <laughs> because of, it's a lot of people, we, you know, is not working at these facilities now, so they're short staffed, mm -hmm. but they used to have what they call a mobile crisis unit. And so when the person is having an episode, you can call out the mobile crisis unit They'll come to your home or wherever the person is having the episode, talk to that person, try and convince that person to get treatment. And if that's not successful, then they'll tell the loved one, the family member, to come see me file an affidavit of commitment because that commitment is always there. That is an option, but we want to do the least intrusive is what I'm hearing you say. Right, right, right. We, we try other we try to find the least restrictive placement for the okay. person. Okay. okay. Um, and in doing that, typically I try to find a facility for the person mm -hmm. to go into uh, because if you're looking at, because ultimately when you commit a person, they're ultimately going, they're ultimately going to the state hospital. Okay. Um, and there's a waiting list to get into the state hospital. Interestingly, <laughs> it's always funny because I, I'll tell the family members that, you know, if, go to the state hospital and they're okay with going to the state hospital as long as they're not going to Whitfield. Well, mm. Whitfield is the state hospital. It's the state hospital. 
Right. It's just uh, the state hospital is actually located in Whitfield, Mississippi. Mississippi, yes. Right. And people don't, you know, that stigma from right. Whitfield. They're okay with their loved ones going to the state hospital. They just don't want them going to Whitfield. Because and they, so con I, they connote Whitfield is this place where people are uh, bound yes, and, and, yeah. And they do all the movies. Right, yeah. mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I never refer to the state hospital as Whitfield unless we get down to a discussion and I have to say that. Okay. Um, another thing I do have to explain to the family members, because like I say, there's no easy way to do a commitment because it's going to be difficult when you sign the affidavit. Mm -hmm. I get the appointment scheduled. I get the, eva the evaluation schedule and I have the sheriff's department getting ready to come pick your loved one up. It's always difficult when you see your loved one is suffering from a mental illness being taken, escorted out of your home, out of the home handcuff. Absolutely. And, and I tell them, I try to prepare them the best I can because when the sheriff's department come, they're going to come in numbers. Okay. And they're going to take your loved one and that whether your loved one is going to go going to cooperate yeah. or whether they're going to put up a fight but they're going to the hospital and that and can be very going, traumatic i imagine it it can it can be and and so and i tell them now this is the ugly side that's one part of it but if they get to the hospital or the facility because we have a crisis center here in grenada if they get to the crisis center it's a crisis center with with other patients medical staff, no officers there. But if they start fighting and get combative, then unfortunately I may have to have them removed from there and placed in jail. Mm -hmm. And that's what I hate to do because a person who's suffering from a mental illness, who is sick, should not be in jail. Absolutely. Okay? Absolutely. But what, what I do, if I have to place a person in jail, I try to have the hearing as quickly as possible get the evaluation as quickly as possible. And when we send that paperwork to the state hospital, they put them on the priority list to get them out of jail as quickly as possible. Okay, because, because I imagine people are very uncomfortable with everything that happens to black males in media when they're handcuffed or when they're taken to jail. People have, I'm sure, concerns about what's gonna happen to their loved one while they're in jail awaiting a hearing. Right, well, I have a, a relationship with the jail also. And so, if a person is placed in jail, we have what we call cell B-22, which is the cell for mentally ill patients. Okay. And so that'll be a cell to themselves. And the nurse is right there. Okay. So I'll have the nurse to check on them. I actually have, if the person, a lot of times when I'm committing people, that's because they're off their medication. And I'll have the family members take the medication to the jail. And the nurse can start administering that medication to the person if the person is willing to take the medication. If they're willing to take it. Right. Right. But they won't. I was about to say they won't forcibly they will not force medication. It. No, no. And even these crisis centers that uh, I, I get patients into, they won't force the medication on them. They'll, you know, uh, give them the medication. If they don't Encourage take it. Encourage them. Right. Mm -hmm. If they don't take it, they won't force it on them. Now, the state hospital is different. Right. Because <laughs> they can mandate. Right, because they can they can argue that you're a danger to yourself or to others in this in this facility. So they have a little bit more, um, I guess, a different threshold at which they would be utilizing. At the that, state that's hospital. correct. Yeah. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's what we do. Um, you know, at the hearing, I'm soliciting testimony about uh, the factual basis for the commitment. Okay. With the key point, danger to themselves or others, or unable to care for themselves, and a lot of times. Okay, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say a lot of times uh, the respondent or the person I'm committing, they'll actually commit themselves because they're, you know, talkative, mm -hmm. uh, rambling. Um, they may get up and start walking or, or just mm -hmm. doing things. Yeah. And so I'll let that play out um, in the courtroom. So you um, see the observable evidence, because that was my question. What, because you mentioned the commitment process is a difficult process in terms of having someone committed what is the threshold one has to meet in order to be it's, committed it's clear and convincing evidence okay you have to clear and convincingly convince the judge that this person is suffering from a mental illness and one of the most difficult things 
uh, when it comes to committing a person is when the family member goes on the witness stand to testify, the person, the respondent, the person that's being committed is right there. And so a lot of times they'll lash out, they'll cuss them out and, and say things. And I have to keep redirecting the affiant, the person testifying, look at me, talk to me, don't talk to him, talk to me. Don't worry about what he's saying. The judge will ask and tell, you know, uh, calm down, you need to be quiet. Mm -hmm. And the person, they might listen, but then they'll start back talking. And that's difficult to um, hear your loved one call you yeah. out your name. Mm -hmm. And I have to explain to them that it's a mental illness. Absolutely. And it's manifested through their mouth and through their actions. Absolutely. You can see your arm broken. You know not to touch that arm. But when it's a mental illness, it's your mind. And like I say, it comes down to you. Their, their actions and, and they verbalize things and they don't mean it. They just, they, they just suffer from illness. And, and the key is- And that get, can be difficult. I, 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 you know, I, I have a brother who's been diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And when he's not on his medication, he's actively psychotic. And mm -hmm. so he is not the same brother when he's not on his medication and he's actively psychotic. And so his behavior is, is it, it can be very scary. Um, uh, and you know, he's not necessarily violent per se, uh, and he's very, very smart. So he knows to say the least. So you talked about this uh, observable evidence, cause we did try to get him committed. Um, and the police would not commit one, one, because I was in Georgia and he's in Chicago. So I wasn't there to directly observe the behavior, uh, which they promptly told me, but two, he didn't meet the threshold because he wasn't giving them enough evidence. When they said, what's your name? He gave them their name. He did not. Um, when they said, are you danger to yourself or to others? Of course, he's going to say no. Um, and then after that, he just refused to really engage in much conversation. So you don't have data to go on. Um, right. I'm safe. I'm comfortable. Would you all please leave? Yeah. And, and a lot of times, the first time I commit a person, probably the first, second, maybe even the third time uh, I commit a person, they basically commit themselves. But after that, they figured out the procedures, the steps, and a lot of times they'll come to court and they'll just be quiet. Mm. When, they, when they're in the treatment facility, they know if they take the medication, uh, uh, cooperate in therapy sessions, they'll get out. Right. And when they get out, they'll stop, they'll taking, stop the, taking the medication. Absolutely. Right, they'll stop Absolutely. taking the medication. Yeah. And then we'll be right back on this roller coaster doing this commitment all over Right. I mean, and that's the thing, like a lot of people learn the system. And, and like you said, jail is not the best place for them. But unfortunately, a lot of, and Grenada's a small town, because um, here you are doing stuff that in a lot of other towns, attorneys aren't doing. You're setting up appointments. Like you're, um, a lot of times there are, are other people and providers that are taking on that responsibility. But then also you mentioned you don't necessarily have the resources every time for mental health professionals to come out. So a lot of times police are coming out. And we know that um, one of our, our viewers, Tony Brady, said we know that police and mental health don't usually go real well together because a lot of people's psychosis is around police officers. Right. Well, and, and one thing we have here that uh, the, the relationship that I have with law enforcement, um, when they, they often tell me when it's a person at such and such street, did you get a call uh, from this person? Or when they get a call to go over there, um, they may not arrest the person right then. They'll tell the family to contact me, okay? Or law enforcement will contact me about this person. You need to uh, you know, go over there or get somebody, your family to come to you because we're getting a lot of calls on this person. And, and so that keeps me, me pretty busy. Um, and unfortunately, I well, not unfortunate, but I tell the law enforcement, because sometimes I've had them to call me when they're on the scene mm -hmm. and they ask me what to do. And I said, well, if they're committing a crime, take them to jail. If they're mentally ill, I'll go to court and I will represent the person to get the charges either remanded or dismissed or reduce from a felony to a misdemeanor so I can get that person some treatment. Does because that pose a conflict of interest? Slightly. You, okay. But it's justice. Okay. Because they are getting what they need. They need mental health getting, treatment. They don't need jail They're getting mental health treatment because the whole point is for them to stop this behavior, get the treatment. Mm -hmm. So if they got the treatment, then this behavior wouldn't continue and law enforcement wouldn't have to keep coming over there. 
But if I sit idle and not do anything, then the cycle is going to continue. And they'll keep going to jail. And they'll keep going to jail. They'll run up a fine that they cannot pay. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's a slight conflict, but it's justice. Yeah. Okay. And that's the way I see it. Okay. Ultimately, to get them the treatment. To get them the treatment. And so I was in court today, this morning, like I say, way longer than what I had planned on being, because uh, it was several people that were arrested. And um, I have to now do paperwork to get them out of jail and get them into a facility okay. uh, before next week. So, Okay. No, no pressure. No, so, no pressure. <laughs> now, we have a mental health court here, but it doesn't sound like Grenada necessarily has a mental health court per se. No. So no. everybody goes to the same court. Everybody has the same process, but the judge will often recognize, like, this is a mental health issue. So we have other options. So hospitalization or other um, programs that a person could go to as opposed to going to jail? What's the process typically? Well, in Mississippi, all of the, well, in in our chancery district and in most chancery districts, the the senior chancellor appoint you for judges and family masters. They're the ones that preside over the uh, lunacy cases. Okay. Okay. Um, That's what I do in Montgomery County. I preside over those cases there. In Grenada County, I present those cases. And so anytime, like I say, anytime a person is suffering from a mental illness, I fill out the affidavit, get the information from the loved one, fill out the affidavit, they sign off on it, and I present it to the judge. Now, once the judge signs the order Mm -hmm. for the uh, sheriff's department to take them to be evaluated, all right, they're supposed to be evaluated within 48 hours. So what that means is I will schedule the evaluation first before I present the order to the judge because it's no guarantee that I can get an evaluation done within 48 hours. Right. All right. Now, once the doctors evaluate the person and the certificate is filed at the courthouse, the doctor's certificate, if both doctors recommend further treatment, hospitalization and treatment, then I'll schedule a hearing. The hearing has to be done within seven days. Okay. Okay. Unless... It can be continued for good cause at the respondent's request, which is the person we're committing, up to 10 days, okay? So we try to, and and here in Grenada, we try to have the hearing. If the doctors file a certificate, let's say on Monday, we Mm -hmm. try to have the hearing on Tuesday. Okay. Okay, so because it's it's so many people that that I have that I'm committing. Right. I would and, think a backlog would happen here. We are backed up for a mental health evaluation. I mean, it might take me a month to get somebody in for a mental health evaluation. Well, we, we, we're backed up and the facilities, like I say, they're short staff. Right. Um, at our crisis center here in Grenada, they normally have 16 beds. And right now they're running half staff. Um, so they're probably juggling maybe seven or eight beds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Lord, don't let a person get in there that's violent, uh, that, you know, takes all their attention, the staff's attention. Right. And so at that point, you know, they're not accepting anybody. And I look at other facilities. I first mm-hmm. start with the local place, the closest place. That way, if the loved ones want to visit, they mm-hmm. don't have farther drive. Okay. Um, and the crisis center will accept them without insurance. Any okay. Because okay. a lot of times, unfortunately, some of our mental mental ill patients, mentally ill patients don't have have insurance. Right. Right. Those that do have benefits, I'll take it a step further and go probably Panola Medical in Baseville. So they have additional options if they have mental health coverage. Right. Okay. Right. Right. And that's always a blessing if they have benefits, insurance, because that opens up other options. Okay. But we know that most people are dealing with chronic and persistent mental illness are not going to likely have those. No, because I have patients, I have patients that uh, they don't want a check because they want to work. Mm-hmm. They they don't accept this mental illness. Mm-hmm. They want to work. So they will not go to the Medicaid office and apply for Medicaid uh, because they want to work. And you know, they'll they'll get hired. Right. And within a week's time, they're fired because people are watching them and talking about them. And and so, you know, the paranoia kicks in. Right. And that's that's unfortunate. 
That is sad because you want to have a normal quality life. And it is hard to acknowledge that you have, particularly for Black men, that you have a serious and persistent mental illness. And I I think most, which is why people stop taking medication and medication has side effects, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and nobody wants to be, we talk, we've talked about this before. Nobody wants to be labeled as crazy. Um, People want to be treated well and want to be valued and seen as if they have some worth. And so I can't be doing that if I'm getting a chick. Right. A lot of people think that stigma is still very much out there. And and another thing we try to do in the court system, like um, I redirect a lot of people because when they, I don't refer to patients as crazy. Right. I refer to it as mental illness. And even if it's my client, the loved one saying, he's just crazy, I'll stop them. Right. Right. And read and correct them because we don't use that term crazy. It's an mm-hmm. illness. It's a sickness. You don't call people with cancer crazy. Mm-hmm. And so I redirect them. And um, because it's all about trying to. You're educating people too. Well, it's, it's you know, that stigma that's out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. You know, and it's all about trying to do away with that negative stigma. Absolutely. Like I remember when I first started doing this um, back around 2004, everybody went to jail. Everybody. I remember that judge, if you. If, you, if I filed an affidavit for commitment, he wanted everybody in jail before he would even look at it. Mm. And, and I went to some NAMI meetings mm-hmm. and the people would testify, give their testimony about how they felt being in jail. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they just hated it because they, they did nothing wrong. They're sick. They have an right. illness. Right. And so that started me thinking, okay, yeah, that's, that's right. You know, we need to treat these patients with some dignity. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's all we want. Though, interestingly, the the court still refers to them as lunacy cases. Right. Right. I don't like that term either. (laughs) Yeah. And that's in our statute. But um, we still have a long way to go. And and funding is something that we need um, because there there is a lack of facilities. Oh, yeah. In Mississippi. Um, Well, that's everywhere. It's not just in Mississippi. Well, I have have a shortage. I have people like just today, uh, when I was in court, lady was saying, I I need him to go long term. He needs long term. Okay, long term does not exist. Um, what's long? I just committed a lady uh probably a month ago. She went to the state hospital, stayed three weeks and she's back. Mm-hmm. And now she got back what so uh, last week, uh, and her daughter is calling me. She's doing the same thing. She still believes she's God's wife and She's running around and she said they misdiagnosed and won't give her, she don't need this medication. And so I'm now I'm having to turn around and commit her again. Try to get her committed again. Yeah. It, and that's the recidivism piece, right? So that's one of the things is how frequent one, well, I guess two questions. One is what is is there something you more commonly see black males um, being committed for? And two, the recidivism rates in terms of how frequently you're having to commit people, I imagine it's not just one time. No, there's a revolving door. Luckily in Mississippi, they passed a statute that if I commit a person, then that commitment stay, that commitment file stays open for a year. Because okay. one of the problems we were having is, let's say I might commit a person in January, they go to the hospital, get on their medication, then in March, they off the medication again, and then I have to turn around and commit them again. and the family member is having to pay that filing fee all over again. Or, you know, some I've had a family member, I, I committed their loved one, I think four times in one year. Mm. Right? And so they was having to pay that fee. Over every um, time. Over, right. And people can't afford that. Now, in Grenada, we have a different procedure. So they weren't have they weren't, they were not having to pay in Grenada because we base the uh, filing fees and so forth. We base that on the respondent's income, the person I'm committing. And most of the time, that person is either receiving disability or unemployed. And so the county will pick up that tab. So that didn't really affect us in Grenada, but it did help us out because now I can have a commitment case open for a year and I can file multiple times and the family members do not have to come out of the pocket. Um, That's something like in in Montgomery County, you know, they was having to pay that filing fee over and over again. And so now the filing fee is, is, is waived for a year. Okay. 
Um, now, as far as black males is concerned, um, a lot of them will not take the medication. Mm. I commit a lot of uh, black males and they won't take the medication and the crimes. Okay. Jail. A lot of the black males I commit from jail. Okay. Uh, the, the crimes that they commit, uh, as long as it's misdemeanors, I'm not really so much concerned mm -hmm. because I can still commit a person if they commit a misdemeanor offense. Okay. But when it comes to felonies, that's where we run into a problem okay. because the law does not allow me to do a civil commitment on a person who's charged. With oh, a so if they, for example, um, steal something that's worth a certain amount of money, that now becomes a felony and you can't right. commit them. Not civilly. Okay. okay. Now I have represented people. Um, well, I actually had a couple of years ago, I had a guy charged with murder. Okay. Now I had committed him multiple times in the past mm -hmm. and now he, and he's been to prison. Matter of fact, the first time he went to prison, um, he was released from East Mississippi state hospital. Okay. And so his mental illness surfaced while he was in at parchment mm. in prison. And so, but you know, his family didn't know what was going on with him. And so when he was discharged or released from, from prison, I ended up committing him a couple of times. And, and this particular time he had gotten off his medication and I was preparing commitment paperwork went on that. That was that Friday. I was preparing commitment paperwork for, mm. for him. Uh, his family members called me probably Friday around four o'clock. And so I was going to meet with them Monday so they could sign off on the paperwork. Well, that Saturday, he killed his mama's boyfriend. Mm. And I know I know that the guy had a mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so um, at that point, I had to go through on the circuit court side, file a, a motion for psychiatric evaluation to have him evaluated to see okay. if he's competent to stand trial. Okay, so then it's a different process. So now it's we're different. moving into... Yeah, it's a different process, a longer process, mm -hmm. because uh, at that time, it was only 15 beds for the forensic interviews and um, 15 beds to cover the state of Mississippi. Yeah. So think about that waiting list. He sat in jail and in this district, the circuit court judges will not release a person to be at home or in a hospital. Until when they're a yeah. pending mm -hmm. psychiatric evaluation. Yeah. So they have to sit in jail. And this guy sat in jail for three, four years. You said three to four years? Right. He was in jail. Yeah. This was just waiting for the evaluation. Right. This wasn't even, he hadn't even gone through his yeah. hearing yet. He literally was waiting. And see, that's the challenge that a lot of uh, uh, people are dealing with in their, in their cities and states is that on the forensic side, Mm -hmm. that they're just so backed up, but wow, three to four years, we're backed up here. We're not that backed up. Yeah, it's backed up. And so, and then when, when he finally was, was transported to the state hospital, um, he stayed there for another 18 months um, while they were trying to restore him to competency. And then finally they determined that he was incompetent to stand mm -hmm. trial. And so at that point, uh, when we got the doctor's uh, report back, the judge dismissed the charge and ordered us to do a civil commitment on him. After he served five to six years in jail, honestly, right. by this time. Right. And so we turned around and did a civil commitment on him and sent him back to the state hospital. Uh, and and they don't really have a place to house. There's not a like long-term. Mm -mm. mm -mm. They don't. Not for civil. For forensic, yeah. Uh, they have some, some inpatient forensic hospitals. Right. But at some point, you know, he's going to get out and if he, he might already be out. I don't know, um, because I never know when when my when they get released patients are mm. discharged from these facilities. Um, I typically find out when the loved one is calling me <laughs> to, to send commit them, back. them again. Right. <laughs> right. So do you it seems like for. For the black men, the not being on the medication and so not being on Medicaid, if I'm already actively psychotic, then I may perceive. Uh, someone to be a threat so then I could commit an act of violence against a person right. or um, like theft drugs like what are some of the other things that you're seeing I've seen a lot of theft, lot uh, of theft. burglary mm -hmm. of dwellings because they they will 
uh, going to houses, claiming ownership of those houses. Okay. Um, that's that's the main thing. Okay. See. And and assault on law enforcement officers. I've had uh, patients to uh, high speed chase, mm. uh, felony fleeing, or trying to ram law enforcement vehicles, um, fighting with law enforcement. Because I had one guy that was um, in the middle of the highway, riding his bicycle, busy highway, Highway 51, four lane highway, heavy traffic. And and he's in the middle of the highway, and I had almost gotten hit by multiple cars. Mm-hmm. And the police sees him and and try to get him to get out of the road. He doesn't do it. He doesn't comply. Then all of a sudden, he decides to stop <laughs> and get off his bicycle and and do something with his bicycle. So the police pulled up, redirected traffic, and trying to get him to get on his bike and get out of the road. Well, I. I at some point, a fight ensued, and uh, he was getting the best of the officer mm-hmm. out there, and a uh, a trucker pulled over to help the officer, and that's how they got him in the in the police car. Uh, but unfortunately, he had given the police officer a concussion, and so I know the guy's mentally ill, mm-hmm. and so at that point, his family members called me and said, "You know, he's he he's he's." He's not taking his medication. He really doesn't need to be in jail. So at that point, I go to court to try and convince the officers to either remand the charge, reduce mm-hmm. it to something that uh, would allow me to get him some treatment. Yeah. And and so I was able to convince them to allow him to get some treatment. But that's um, not, I'm sure, not always the case well, when you're dealing it's, with... It's, it's difficult. Yeah. It, it is, it is, it is yeah. very difficult having to go and negotiate that, especially if you have some law enforcement officers who don't understand. Right. You know, because right. a lot of them will say, well, they just going to do it. They just won't take the medication. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be the same. Nothing is yeah. going to change. They'll be back. They'll be doing something else. And the next time right. it could be worse or. Yes. And yeah. so um, that's the difficult thing is trying to uh, convince law enforcement to remand or reduce the charge or even not just law enforcement, even the mm-hmm. victims. Okay. Um, yeah. Cause I imagine if you kill my loved one, I'm probably not going to really uh, be as sensitive well, about the fact that you have mental illness. With, with that, when a loved one is killed, uh, you know, a, a really violent crime like murder or manslaughter, I wouldn't even go and ask the loved one to um, try and reduce it or change. I would just deal with it on the, uh, in circuit court. On, on the forensic side, I wouldn't even ask for a civil commitment on that because at that point, that person needs to be evaluated on the criminal side. So I wouldn't even, but if it's if it's something where I think we can have, where I have a little wiggle room, I will. I will okay. step in. Like a break in try, or something. Right. I will where step no one in was hurt. try and get them mm. still. Okay. Now what about, because I, I recognize Judge Johnson, you also are a youth court judge. Um, right. and family master. So what about our young Black males in mental health uh, in terms of the family system? What does that role entail? Okay. And we also have a lot of juveniles that um, some, they don't diagnose them. They don't, I don't think they diagnose them with mental illness. But in youth court, you don't have to go through this, necessarily have to go through this commitment procedure. Okay. okay? unless you're trying to get your loved one into a particular hospital, like a Oak Circle, which is the state hospital for juveniles or specialized treatment facility on the coast that requires a court order. Other than that, if the person is under 18, the family can say, I want you in this facility and like Parkwood or, or Brentwood. And so it's up to the mother or the father to, to get them there. Of course, one of the problems we have is transportation, because when you talk about a 17-year-old male or 16, 15-year-old male, just a teenager in general, and we're talking about single-parent homes where it's the mother, and a lot of times those males are larger than the mother, and if they're adamant they're not going, the mother can't transport that person to the facility, and so in that case, we may have to file a civil commitment on that person. Or if that child is committing a delinquent act, 
which a delinquent act is any act if committed by adult will be considered a crime. The the family member, the mother can can press charges on love on that child. And and in youth court is all considered civil, so it's not anything that's gonna follow the child. And it's okay, so this won't be on their record. It will not be okay. on it. But but what that does is give youth court jurisdiction over the child. And so if you press charges, we can have what they call a, a detention hearing. Okay. Detention hearing is a, a, a short hearing uh, where the judge determines whether because of this act, whether they're going to lock this child up at the detention center or place this child in a facility or allow the child to go back home with some restrictions like house arrest or place the child in the, in the uh, care of another loved one, a guardian. Okay, so at the detention hearing, if the mother is really trying to get the child to a behavioral health center, i.e. a Parkwood or Brentwood or Diamond Grove, um, the judge can order the child to be placed there and have the sheriff's department transport the child there. Okay, because if you don't have a detention hearing or youth court does not have jurisdiction over the child, then the sheriff's department is not going to transport. They have to have some type of court order for them to transport. Um, and so that will make us have to either file a commitment mm. or some type of detention here. Because I think about how difficult that must be as a parent. You have a child and we, we know that kids, like you said, they can be larger than the, the mom. Uh, Marcus has been 6'5 for a long time. <laughs> so I can't imagine trying to force him right. to go to mental health treatment. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, feeling bad because I don't want the sheriff's to be showing up to transport him because that's traumatizing. But at mm -hmm. the same time, I feel like I don't know what else to do with him. He needs mental health services. So he needs to get to treatment. I, I, I can't imagine how that can't be difficult for a parent oh. to have to make a decision like that. It's, it's very difficult. I've, I've witnessed plenty of parents crying. And, and that's why, you know, in the court system, I, you know, we take our time. I don't rush anything. I, I understand the pain in the grievance, okay? So, and and I explain, I, it's, I try real hard to explain to the parent, you know, what they're going through. Be there for the parent and talk them. Talk them through the process. And when they start crying in the courtroom on the witness stand, I give them time, okay? And I explain after that when, when their child is, is dragged out of the courtroom, uh, fighting, kicking, screaming, or whatever they're doing. I explain to the parent what's happening and what's going to happen. And a lot of times I have to keep reiterating that because they might not hear me the first time. And so, um, and I know it's difficult. It's very difficult. Um, like I say, the commitment process is not a pretty process. It's not easy. It's, it's very difficult. Um, and I heard you say, ideally, we want to get our, our loved ones, whether that's our adult black males or our, our youth, into mental health treatment without going through this process. But at the same time, we recognize that when people have serious and persistent mental illness, a uh, lot of stigma, a lot of concern, a lot of um, you know paranoia sometimes about the process, like what's gonna happen to me? What are these people gonna be doing? Like, I don't know a lot of people that necessarily are going to volunteer um, to go and do, go, go and do that. Like, oh, I'm going to go to this hospital where people are going to be evaluating me and possibly telling me to take medication and I'm around other people. Because most people's experience with a mental health hospital is what they've seen on TV, which, right. you know, is not a process that anybody would look forward to after seeing a lot of the movies that are out there about what mental health hospitals look like. Right. Well, that's why I advocate education, because I believe if, number one, the, the person suffering from mental illness learns more about their illness. And number two, their loved one is taking care of them, learn about their mental illness because both are going to suffer. People with mental illness, their family members, they don't sleep because most of the time the people with mental illness, they don't sleep. They're up at night rambling. Mason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and they're constantly worried. And so if they, if we have programs where we can educate the people, um, to, so they can understand about mental illness. That I think will help a lot. Well, you have segued into my next section, section uh -oh. of questions. 
<laughs> which is, you know, where, how, how we can be, you know, supportive in terms of we're talking about mental health. We know that there are a lot of risk factors uh, for Black males to have mental illness. We have, you know, homelessness and poverty. We have genetic factors. We have cultural factors, the trauma, all of the things that are going on, disparities. I mean, there, there are going to be risk factors. People are likely going to be dealing at some point in their lives with a mental health issue, whether it's them directly or someone in their family members. And that might be something that's more transient as a result of something that happened situationally, but some of us are going to be dealing with some chronic illness. So you talked about education as something that can be a tool of resource for people. Um, how helpful do you think mental health treatment has been for people, like for the people that have been able to go, because you mentioned uh, being committed versus actually being able to go to a place of your own choosing, and that process may look a little different. Have you found that mental health treatment has been helpful? It has been, but it's up to an individual person. Um, those who want help or seek treatment, uh, I don't know those people because they never come to me. They don't come to you. Right. Um, I've heard about them. And because a lot of times people want to jump to me and then I'll tell them, talk to the loved ones, see if they're willing to get some treatment. And sometimes that works and I don't hear anything back from them, which is a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, but in the event, like I say, I'm always here. The commitment process should be the last resort. Okay. I'm always here, but I, I, I try to give them resources. Um, okay. like for instance, the department of mental health here, um, let me give that number to your, in, in Mississippi, you can contact this, uh, department of mental health. They have a hotline number is one 210 Give me that one more time, Tark. 1-877-210-8513. Okay. Or you can go to the website, www.d as in dog, mh.ms.gov. Give me that one more time. www.dmh.ms.gov, G-O-V. Okay, because when I have cases that are very difficult, let's say a person is uh, suffering from a mental illness, but then they also have a traumatic brain injury, yes. and a lot of facilities won't take the patient. And so I contact them, you know, Department of Mental Health to find resources, mm -hmm. and they can open you up to a lot of resources, okay? A lot of resources and different facilities. Um, you, you should also contact, like in Grenada, you would contact Life Help. Um, contact them because they should be able to provide resources for you also. And they should be a willing to sit down with you and talk to you about your loved one's illness. Okay. And explain to, because I believe in education. I believe in thoroughly explaining the situation to patients. So they'll know what to expect to the family. So they'll know what to expect. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I'm not one to rush through. And it, it sort of hurts me because I'm I'm backed up with work anyway <laughs> and, and working way too long. But it's more important that the loved one understand and know what to expect. Okay. okay? Because my job is to provide a resource for them and to help them. Okay. Help not only the affiant, the person I'm representing, mm -hmm. but also the respondent, the person that's, that's suffering from a mental illness. Okay. And, and I will say that, um, you know, one of the viewers talked about that your approach is, is not a common necessarily approach right. to take <laughs> to take all that time. And as you mentioned, like, okay, I suffer um, as a result of that because I get backed up, but it's important for me to provide education because I, I do think a lot of times people can't make an informed decision because they don't have enough information. Mental illness is very complicated. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of stigma. Um, I did a lot of shame when you have a family member that has a mental illness. Um, I, I, I know a lot of times people want to kind of hide that away uh, and not have to deal with it. But as you said, like I'm dealing with it at night while you're up and you're pacing or you may be um, talking to yourself or um, you may be getting into things in the house um, and I wake up and all kinds of stuff is as you've gotten into or I may feel like I have to keep my door locked because I'm not sure. Uh, what exactly you may be thinking, and and oh, the that scary is, one is when you're you're asleep in your bedroom and you wake up and your loved one is standing over you. 
Mm-hmm. Not saying anything, but they're standing mm-hmm. over you. Staring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've, I have been, I've committed people, uh, one guy in particular. And when I started committing him, he was, he was a young guy. Mm-hmm. And then he had this growth spurt where he ended up being like 6'6 six, six, and tall guy. And a lot of facilities were afraid of him because of his size. Mm-hmm. I ran into him in the barbershop one day and, uh, <laughs> He looked at me and he he just stared and he did the mm-hmm. and he'll stop and he'll do it again. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh Lord, what is this guy? What's on his mind? Um, he's younger than me. I know I can't I can't fight him. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to try to outrun him. He'd probably catch me, but by then I'd be done <laughs> creating enough noise. But he mm-hmm. was fine with it. He was cool. Mm-hmm. And I speak to to my patients um at the industry because I try to treat them like a normal person you want to normalize that for you like right. you, you um, have a mental illness but that's not the totality of who you are as a person right um, it's, as it's a young man important. or as a, an adult male yeah it's, it's it's just an illness and mm-hmm. and and when i go to court to represent them i understand that uh, these fines that they may have to pay that i try to get them out of you know, if they're receiving a disability check, they're already mm-hmm. on limited income. And most of them are receiving SSI, which probably $700 a month or $800 mm-hmm. a month. That's yeah. not enough money to live off of. And then you have to pay a three, four, five hundred, seven hundred $700 fine on top of that. You know, that's just money on the books is never going to be collected. Right. And so I try to stop all that and all that. Yeah. And um, that's why I go to court to, to represent them. Okay, so that you don't have that hanging over your head, this debt that you're right. not going to be able to, to pay. Are there any like vocational rehabilitation programs or anything for the, those that do want to work, but you know, and have well, a diagnosable mental illness? What we have here, Life Help here used to have a day program where okay. people could go there every day and they'll be there, okay, mm-hmm. throughout the day. I don't really know the time frame, but like I say, they can contact Life Help. They used to have a day treatment program. Um, okay. for individuals, um, you know, to give them something to do, make sure they're taking the medication. And they would do crafts and different things of that sort in that day treatment program. Yeah. But that's that's all I know that's, of. That's yeah. really, the, yeah. And and I know a lot of places. Again, Grenada is a relatively smaller town. Um, yeah. And so sometimes smaller areas don't necessarily have as many of those resources. Um, one of the viewers was just saying sometimes when you're first experiencing your loved one with mental illness, like you don't even know where to start, where to begin in, right. in this, in this process. And so, like you mentioned the education piece, but knowing about like, okay, what kind of opportunities um, are out there for them to do to work if that's a possibility. Um, but then also, you know, are there some ways that they can be supported in the community activities that they can have? Cause you do, like you said, I want them to have purposeful, meaningful activity. I want them to be able to recognize that they have worth and value and they should be treated with dignity, but then I may not necessarily have programs that they would be able to participate in, in order for them to have meaningful activity to do. Well, in Mississippi, Every county has a local mental health facility. Okay. Every county. We're in Region 6 here in Grenada, which encompasses multiple counties. Um, the first place I would say start is contact your Chancery Clerk's Office. Okay. The Chancery Clerk's Office should be able to put you in contact with um, the local mental health facility. All right. Like in Grenada, if you contact the Chancery Clerk's Office, they're going to tell you to call me. If it's anything pertaining to mental illness, they're going to tell you to call me. And so if you contact me, then I'll put you in contact with all these different resources that's available okay. in this area right here. Okay. But you can first start with the Chancery Clerk's Office, mm-hmm. or you can start with Department of Mental Health, that mm-hmm. uh, telephone number or website that I gave you earlier. Okay. Those are good places to start. Um, but a lot of people don't even know that. Um, they just know their loved one is acting out, and they don't know why. Right. Um, and, and of course, uh, I do most of my commitments. I get the calls on Fridays at 3.30, <laughs> 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock. Well, the party know. starts on the weekend. Right. And holidays. Mm-hmm. Oh, I get real busy uh, right before a holiday. Oh, yes, yeah, real busy then. Yeah. Um, I can imagine that because if you think about 
you know, the, the, um, I think the symptoms that are most commonly seen when people are be com being committed, like psychosis is up at the top of that list. So if I'm actively paranoid, guess why I'm gonna get more paranoid when all these folks coming around for the holidays or there's fireworks or um, we have uh, events that you want me to go to and you're trying to drag me out to places and um, you know, there's more noise. People are, are doing more things. So yeah, I'm gonna, I am gonna be more paranoid. I am gonna be more actively psychotic during those times as opposed to a quiet weekday uh, when there's not a lot of stuff right. going on. So I could definitely see that they're being uh, and, uh, heightened. And you, you have to be aware of the, those who self-medicate because drug addiction and mental illness tend to go hand in hand. They are um, correlated. A lot of people who may be on meth, they show a lot of signs and symptoms of schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia. And so you have to be cognizant of that too. Yeah. Um, and I deal with that also, um, committing people into uh, rehabilitation facilities for drug okay. or alcohol addiction also. Um, okay, so they, they, you can commit people even if they don't necessarily want treatment. I'm sure they still have to meet the threshold, but. Right, that's a okay. different, different factual basis that I okay. have to prove um, in court for a drug and alcohol commitment. Uh, I have to show that the person because of their um, uh, addiction, excessive use of alcohol, they've lost the power of self-control and unable to look out for themselves. And, okay. and so, you know, we'll file a different set of paperwork. Does not necessarily mean they have to be evaluated by doctors, but they still, the, the loved one still has to be, has to have absor 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 observed that, <laughs> that behavior, okay? Okay. And, and, and that, you know, provides another challenge because these rehab facilities are, are full um, and they charge. Absolutely. And they are expensive. Of, right. And a lot of uh, family members don't have the income. And so when you look at trying to find free facilities, they're backed up. State hospital. Yeah, um, yeah a lot of people yeah. think state hospital is just for people with mental illness, but they do have a, a, mm -hmm. a department for drug and alcohol addiction. Mm-hmm. But in order to get them into that facility, oh man, you're talking about a five to six month waiting list. Yeah, yeah. If 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 that, um, right? Like you, like you mentioned, I mean, that can get much longer because mm -hmm. uh, we're and, we're in such demand for mental health services, but we don't have the resources to keep up with the the need. Right, and so and when you look at facilities that are free, um, they prefer people that want help, want to voluntarily enter. Um, not people that are being court ordered and forced to be there. Mm. And so, and that's another thing right there um, that you have to take in consideration. Now, okay. one of the things I did learn, uh, like here in Grenada, like I said, we have the, uh, we're in region six mental health uh, district and uh, the Denton Center, or it might be called Denton House, I'm not really sure, but it's located in Greenwood. Uh, they deal with drug and alcohol addiction, okay? Now, the Department of Mental Health provides five or six indigent beds at that facility, meaning that okay. a person, if they are accepted, they may can go there for free, mm -hmm. okay? Um, Department of Mental Health will pay for that. So they provide those indigent beds. Now, there's a high demand for those indigent beds. Clearly. Yeah, high demand, but that's, that's out there. And mm -hmm. that's going to be all of these facilities will offer that and so that's one of the things your, your your viewers may want when they contact department of mental health ask about that they'll direct them to the proper facility in their county but know that there are indigent beds out there because of course the facility may not tell you that up front because they want the money right right hey, absolutely there there are indigent beds out there not a lot of them but they're there Okay. Well, Judge Johnson, I appreciate you. Um, as you no, mentioned, no, it ain't over yet. I got, I got more. <laughs> I hadn't even got into the the, the crust of what I researched. <laughs> uh, I know, I know you are. Um, but the Department of Mental Health, you also mentioned NAMI, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness, which has a lot of educational opportunities for people to learn more about mental health and how it may be expressed. So you mentioned that one. I do want to highlight that too, NAMI. 
so thank you. I know that you are not a person who is a fan of social media or not on social media at all. Uh, all so right. I thank you for coming on uh, today. want to let you all know that our upcoming series will continue on next Tuesday, June 14th, Permission to Heal Black Men in Mental Health with Robbie Murphy, LPC. On Tuesday, the 21st, Barbershops, Self-Care and, self and Safe Spaces for Black Men with Reverend Stephen Garrett. And Tuesday, the 28th, Men at the Cross, Pastors in Mental Health. Thank you all for joining Tea Time with Dr. Tarver. Be well. <music>